I want to begin today by asking you a fun question. I, I think it's a fun question. Maybe it's not, but I want to ask it to you this morning as we get started. And that is this. If you could have anything you wanted, what would it be? If you could have anything you wanted, what would that be? I, I mean like Aladdin, you know, genie in the bottle, you know, gives three requests. That kind of, I have three wishes. But you only get one wish. You get one, not three. If you have anything you wanted, one wish, what would it be? Now, here's some ground rules for you cheaters out there, okay? You can't pull one of these little, you know, cheat code hacks of saying, ooh, my one wish is for a thousand more wishes. <laughs> you can't do that, okay? That's off the table. If you say something like, oh, my one wish is that anything I ever want happens, that's cheating. You can't do that. If you, if you wish like that, you lose your one wish, okay? But you can ask for one thing, one wish today. If you could have anything you wanted, what would it be? Would it be for lots of money because you think, man, a lot of my problems could be fixed with some serious cash? Or maybe you'd say I'd pick um, fame, or as we would put it today in more uh, modern terms, to be an influencer, you know. And, or um, I would pick, um, f uh, you know, perhaps you'd say I'd, I'd pick a relationship. There's a relationship I really want and I just can't have it, but I could have one thing, I'd have that relationship. Or maybe to get back at someone who's wronged you. Or maybe health improvement or just long quality of life, right? What would you pick if you could have one thing and you had that wish granted to you? What would you ask for? What would it be? We're going to come to that thought in a little bit here today. But I want to set the stage first before we come back to that. So we're taking a journey for, for a while now. We're taking a journey through the biblical narrative and when we last left off our story a couple of weeks ago, we finished with the death of King David and the, the um, reign, the new king, his son Solomon. Solomon was not the next in line age-wise. He was down the list of ways, but he did end up getting promised the throne. And he had to survive a rebellion by his brother who tried to take it from him. But when we, we finished last time, Solomon was established as the new king on the throne of Israel. If I can remind you, David, in his lifetime, had really wanted to exalt the worship of God. So he had, pil he had um, made a big deal of bringing the tabernacle, which was like a portable tent, where they met with the sacred furniture to practice worshiping God. They brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, the new capital city that David acquired when he became king. And, and next to the palace that was built for him, he set up the tabernacle for folks to come worship God. And he wrote songs. And he wanted to build a more permanent structure, a, a very nice place, not a tent that could be set up and taken down, but a permanent house or a temple for God. But the Lord told David that that's not your job. Your job is to, is to deal with national security, fight the wars around you, get things established so that when you pass away, your son is ready to reign in an era of peace and, and, and national strength, and he will be the one to do those initiatives. So David wanted to, but he prepared his whole lifetime to uh, maybe blueprints and, um, and materials and cost, setting up his son to one day build the temple when he became king. And now Solomon is the king. He's established the throne. He's dealt with the rebellion of his brother. He is ready to lead from here on out. But what we find in the story is that um, as the new king, 
There's a young king. Solomon has to figure out what's next. So in 1 Kings 3, 1, it says this. Uh, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. This was a very common practice in ancient times, by the way. We saw this in King David's life as well. We'll see it in the future. Back in those days, kings would often marry the children of other kings because it would cause alliances between their country. People would feel... Um, they have each other's best interest at heart when they were intermarried as nations. So it happened a lot, whether you know it always should have or not. It's a whole different conversation. But Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, and he brought her to live in the city of David until he could finish building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around the city. Now, I want to just say something about that verse and the verse that will follow it so that you understand what's going on here. Jerusalem is in a major state of renovation. It's, it's, it's totally being remodeled. I mean, the HGTV crews are there. They're filming all their stuff. I mean, Jerusalem is going through a major renovation at this time. Um, the tabernacle, the tent they worshiped God in had been taken away, and in its space, they were building the temple. Um, Solomon was building a brand new palace, unlike his father's. And the wall around the city was being re-fortified. So the whole city is having a major facelift. And because of that, everyone's kind of in a state of limbo and Solomon's trying to settle down. It says in, in verse number two that at that time, the people of Israel sacrificed their offerings at local places of worship for a temple honoring the name of the Lord had not yet been built. People were going wherever they could while the, while the remodel was going on in Jerusalem, finding other places to do their sacrifices temporarily. And so one of those places, in verse 4 it says, the most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon. So the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. I don't know why Gibeon became the go-to place while Jerusalem was being re renovated. But for some reason, Gibeon was the, the place people tend to, tended to go during this era of transition. And so King Solomon goes there with a thousand burnt offerings. Wow, graciously paid for by the taxpayers of Israel. But anyhow, he goes there to offer sacrifices and um, do his thing. And it says in verse 5 that that night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and God said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. This is interesting. The Lord who seemed to have a special relationship with Solomon. Remember when Solomon was born, his mama was Bathsheba, his dad was King David. They had had an older child who had passed away in infancy, a young a infant had died, and then uh, Solomon was born after that. And it says the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him. And it was one of those kids, he was always special. You ever have those people that you, from a young age, there's so, something special about them? And, it, and David promised that he would be the next king. And now he was. And God appears to Solomon in a dream in a most unusual way. But there's a special thing going on here. And God says to Solomon, hey, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. Now here's this moment. Here's this genie in the bottle moment. Here's the one wish. What do you ask for, Solomon? Do you ask for, for God to smite those enemies of yours that keep get, you know, giving you trouble that you can't quite reach? Or do you... Um, Pray for that relationship you're hoping to get or the wealth and the riches and the opulence of your life or do you ask for, for um, you know, long life or do you ask for fame? Solomon has a moment, and what would we ask for in a moment like this? What would, be, what would we be tempted to say, God, if you would give me this one thing, 
that one thing would make my life better. And I want you to make my life better. So Solomon's given that request. What's your one thing? Let's read what he says. And it's such an interesting study. In verse 6, Solomon replied, Lord, you showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Very interesting. The first thing that Solomon does before he asks for anything, before he makes his request, he first recognizes what God has already done. He says, God, before I say a single thing and, and answer the request of what I want, I want to first acknowledge what you've already done. And that's such a big idea. It's such a big idea in Scripture. David, his father, talked about it in Psalms, how that we want to enter God's gates with thanksgiving and enter his courtroom with praise. The Christian writings talk about the same thing, about coming with all of our requests to God with thanksgiving. And Solomon says, God, I'm not going to ask for anything until I first acknowledge what you've already done. And it's such a big deal for you and me. This would change our, our approach to God, our approach to others. Because it's so easy for us in our faith journey to, to look at the blessings in our life and almost take them for granted. To say, well, you know, I deserve those things. To, to, to low-key low become entitled. But to turn around and see what's not right, what's not what we want, and to say, God, hello, what's going on here? Help. But if we can come and say, God, first thing, before I ever ask you for a single thing, I just want to acknowledge you've been good already. It, it would bring us to a contented place. It would bring us to a place of gratitude and, and appreciation if we would come to God first and say, God, I'm grateful for who you are and for what you have already done for me. So I want to say this to you today. Um, Solomon says, God, I acknowledge it. And then he says this, now, Lord, now, O Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father, David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. So he pivots from gratitude, which is the, always the way to start. By the way, the way to start any relationship. I'm grateful. Before I point out what I want, I'm supposed to say I'm thankful for what, who you already are, what you've already done. So, so Solomon begins with gratitude. He pivots to humility. Not a false humility. We tend to fall on one side or the other. Solomon could have been the kind of person that says, hey, I deserve my job. I'm, 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 the, I'm the best. I'm, I'm the king. I'm a self-made person. You know, that's what some people do. Or he could have gone the other way to a false humility of self-deprecation and say, oh, I'm worthless. I'm no good. I can't do it. But instead, Solomon says, look, I know you've put me here. You've, you've, you're behind all of it, God. But here's the thing. I've got a lot of room to grow. I'm like a child who's got a long ways to go before I'm fully developed. I, I'm not there. I've not arrived yet. And God, I know you've put me here, but I know that I need to grow. So he doesn't, he doesn't come saying, yeah, God, that's right. Pay up. Thanks for, thanks for asking. Here's my list of demands. He says, God, you've already been good, and I acknowledge it with gratitude. And God, I know who I am, and I know how far I have to go still. He continues and says, and here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous that they cannot be counted. Okay, what's your request, Solomon? You ready for it? Here it comes. Verse 9. Give me an understanding heart 
Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon, in his one shot, asks for wisdom, for an understanding heart. Why? So like, Solomon, come over here. I want to talk to you, buddy. You could have done better than that. He says, no, no, no. That's what matters. And he gives two reasons why, and they're so powerful. He says, first, so that I can govern your people well. This is, this is beautiful. Solomon is saying, Lord, with my one request, I'm not going to ask for something for me selfishly or for me personally. I'm going to ask for something for the whole nation. Because if you give me wisdom, if you give me an understanding heart, the whole nation will benefit from a king who's doing his job well. So my one request is not just for me, it's for the whole land. I'm not looking for personal gain. I'm looking for a national improvement. God, would you give me what we all need? Help me be a better king. Boy, I'd be so tempted to ask for something for my self-interest. And Solomon says, I want something for everyone. And then he says this, I want wisdom or an understanding heart so that I can... Um, Govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. Now you're like, Solomon, you don't know the difference between right and wrong? Let me help you with that. Murder's wrong. Adultery, uh, adultery's wrong. Um, stealing's wrong. Doing good is right. You know, he said, I'm not talking about right and wrong in the crude sense of morality. He's saying when it comes to governing a nation or governing people, it's, it's hard. It's, it's always black and white. It's gray sometimes. I mean, if you're going to lead a nation, if, if, if Solomon says, if I'm going to lead a nation, there are tough issues. And almost any issue you take on national policy or domestic policy, there's two sides of the issue. And almost everywhere you turn, your advisors are going to tell you why you should go this way and this is the best course of action. And others are going to say, no, this is the best course of action. We see it in our own country today, right? Politics, every issue out there, there's two sides of it, and every person on every issue out there sees it, why, why this is the right way to go. People on the other side of the aisle on that issue see, no, this is the way to, it should be done. And neither side can see the other side's point. We just point fingers and we're like, oh, no, you're just bad. We haven't given you any kind of grace at all. You're just, you're just bad. You're trying to destroy us, you know. No, you're bad. You're trying to destroy us. No, it's, it's my way. And we, we fight and we see no merit in the other people's point of view. We see only our way with no flaws to how I see the world. And there's that kind of bickering going on. And Solomon's a king. And he's going to have people catering to lead him this way and go that way. And they all have good points. But which is the best? And who, and, and who are you going to make mad by not going their way? Or threading the needle and doing the best thing and making everyone a little bit mad? And Solomon says, God, I need wisdom so I know what's best to do when, when it's so unclear. Not only that, but Solomon served as a, a bit of a supreme court. People would come to the king back in those days, like David before him, and they'd bring their request and say, can you sort out our dispute? And that's hard. Now, I'm no king, and I'm, no, I'm just a pastor for a quarter of a century now. But I'm going to tell you, early in my ministry, I did a lot of counseling. 
I, I, kind of the kind of church we had back then was set up to do more of that. And the older I get, the more I'm like, you know, go see somebody else. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to help. I'm glad to say, look, you know, let me hear your story. Let me give you some scripture. Let me give you, you know, my life experience. But I'm more like a general practitioner. If you come here and you got some really serious problems, I'm going to send you to a specialist. You need therapy or you need a licensed counselor. But early on, I just did everybody's stuff, you know. And a 25-year-old, 26-year-old pastor sitting down across the, the desk sometimes from major marriage problems. And um, boy, I'll tell you, I can tell you some stories of people sitting there and the, and the guy's like telling me his story one-on-one. And I'm thinking, man, sir, you got a bad deal. You're a good guy. You got a bad deal. You know, she's trouble. And then, I, then I, later on I'd hear her side of the story when I went and I'm like, wow, you're a great girl. You got a terrible situation. What a bad guy, you know. They both pitch such a good, a good story. And you get them together, you're like, man, you both are convincing, but someone's not telling the truth. Or there's something missing here. I'm getting some bad details. And if you don't know which way to lean because they both have such a rock-solid case why they're, I'm not perfect in general, but specifically they're the problem. No, specifically they're the problem. And you just kind of sort the noise out. It's so hard. And Solomon says, I've got to counsel people as the king. I've got to make decisions. And, and there's so much noise in every decision you make. And someone's always mad at you either way. And you don't want to get it wrong. And you're going to be accused of getting it wrong. But you want to get it right. You want to lead the nation right. You want to help people solve their problems. God, I need wisdom. I need an understanding heart so I can govern your people well. And know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? What a wild request Solomon gave. And it says in verse 10 that the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. And when it says the Lord was pleased, as we're about to see, there was a contingency where God would not have answered his request, though he offered it to him. Kind of like your earlier wish where you could cancel it out with the wrong, with the wrong request. It was possible that God would have said to Solomon, I can't give you exactly that, but I'll modify it to this. You know, like you ever pray, God, give me a Lamborghini. And God's like, mm, I'll give you a car that usually starts and runs, you know, instead. So, you know, it's one of those deals where um, God sees Solomon's request and says, you know what? I can grant that one. I'm pleased with that request. In fact, the Lord says to him in verse 11, God replied, because you have asked for wisdom, in governing my people with justice and have not asked for long life or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you have asked for. I'm going to give it to you. I will give you a wise and an understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or ever will have. You're going to get it, Solomon. That's a good request. But then he adds this. And I will also give you what you did not ask for. Yeah, I'm going to give you the other stuff too. Riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I'll give you a long life too. So here's what God says. Solomon, you didn't ask for those other things. And had you asked, I would have had some pause about your priorities. But because you asked for what was more important, the main thing, the wisdom to be a better person. Because you asked for that, I'm going to throw in the other stuff on the side. The stuff you could have asked for, I'm just going to toss it in for free as a side benefit. Now, there's a lesson here, but don't misunderstand it. The lesson is not for you to run home today and say, Aha, God, I went to church and I heard a little request. God, give me one thing I want. 
I want wisdom, wink, wink, and then check your bank account to see if you get the you know, riches too. You know? That's not, this is not some kind of a game you play with God. This is Solomon showing us that when we pursue what matters most, the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. The rest of the stuff comes along for the ride. If we seek what matters most and not what matters less, the stuff that matters less is going to be fine if we focus on the priority. And he says, I need wisdom. And God says, I'll give it to you, and the rest will come as well. It's an old saying, and I want to just spend a little time here. It's an old saying. You remember the saying, um, what is it? Don't, don't, uh, let me get this right. Give a man, give a person a fish, and you feed them for a day. Teach a person to fish and you feed them for life, right? How many of you have heard that before? You've heard that statement. That's okay. Here's the thing about that. That's usually a statement we use when it comes to how we are charitable towards others. And sometimes we misuse it, don't we? We're like, well, I would give you help, but if I give you a fish, you'll need help again tomorrow, so I'm doing nothing. That's a, that's a cop-out, right? But, but what, we're, what we should do with that is to say, hey, I'll help your immediate need out right now if I can, but then from here, I want to help you, put you in a spot where you will know how to fish, where you'll be set up to where you won't need help again. So let me help you with the immediate thing, but let me help you not need that help again because you're set up to succeed. I'm going to teach you to fish. That's a great, it's a great principle. We've heard it before. But I want you to flip it around the other way for a moment and think about it as we're the ones asking. And we're asking God Give me a fish or teach me to fish. That's what Solomon's doing here. Solomon's like, God, I could ask you for something that will help me today have a better life, or I could ask you to teach me to fish. Give me an understanding heart. Give me wisdom. In other words, what Solomon was asking God for today is what I want us to, to, to think about. He was saying, God, don't make my life better. Make me better. Don't make my life better. Make me better. Because here's the thing. That will make my life better. Think about this. Just think with me. If, if you were to say, hey, God, give me riches, and God, God may, if, if, if you became rich all of a sudden, there are plenty of people in culture who have become suddenly rich through lottery or inheritance or some other me method, and they, wait, they had no wisdom to handle it, and they wasted it all and spent it all until they were broke all over again, or they ruined their life with their money. They got money, and they killed them. You, you say, well, I just want to be famous. If you got fame and you were like a star all of a sudden, but you didn't have the wisdom or character to live in that spot, your fame will turn to infamy probably, and you'll be worse off than being unknown. And it could wreck your life, right? If you could have that, I just want this one relationship. If you could get the relationship you always wanted, but you're not the, a wise or the kind of person you should be, you could ruin that relationship and be having to ask for another one. Right? If you could get long life, all the things we could ask for. God, if you'll give me this, it'll make my life better. But, but Solomon says, God, I'm not going to ask you for something like that. Don't make my life better. Make me better. Because if I have wisdom, hey, if I have wisdom, I can figure out how to make some money and hold on to it. I can figure out how to find some influence and grow it and sustain it. I can find a relationship and make it work. If, if you make me better, the rest will take care of itself. But if you just give me the stuff I want and I'm not better, I'm going to ruin it anyhow. So don't make my life better, God. Make me better. That's the request that Solomon prayed. Because that will make my life better. That's the big idea. We're going to land there in just a moment. Before we do, I, um, there's a lot of stories of Solomon's wisdom in the Scripture from here. 
And I just want to show you one of them because it's kind of famous. You may have heard it. It's too interesting to skip, so I'm going to share it with you on this nice chilly morning. In 1 Kings 3.16, it says, Sometime later, two prostitutes came to the king to have an argument settled. So, this is an awkward thing. The prostitutes, I want to be clear here. I said this over and over. Women in that time, they just didn't have a lot of, they didn't have a good situation. It was a man's world. It still is in some places, but more than others. But back then it was bad. Men controlled businesses. They ran property. If a woman didn't have, you know, if she was a widow or she was considered, quote, unquote, damaged goods for some reason, she couldn't make it on her own. She was just at the mercy of charity or to find a way to eke out a living. So many people turn to things like prostitution to make money from men or to beg or to scrape by some other way. Or maybe this was just two women who had addiction problems. I don't know. I don't know their story, but these are two women who are not exactly the cream of the crop in culture with what they're doing, with the people they're doing it with. But they have a problem, so they come to the king, and King Solomon's going to hear their dispute as the supreme court of the land, so to speak. Here's their problem. Ready? Verse 17. Please, my lord, one of them began. This woman and I, we live in the same house. I gave birth to a baby while she was with me in the house. Three days later, this woman also had a baby. We were there alone, and there were only two of us in the house. So, backstory here. Probably people in that situation were sharing a house, maybe for the work they did, or maybe just as a place to lay low and share housing for people in that field, so to speak. And so these two women are in the house. They got pregnant through their work. And they get pregnant at the same time. They both give birth at about the same time. And for some reason at this moment in their lives, they're the only two staying in this house that they're sharing while being young moms nursing little infants. The, the woman who's talking, she continues and says, but her baby died during the night when she rolled over on it. That just always, yeah, just... Think about that. I remember being a young dad years, I mean, a long time ago, and being, I would hear this Bible story, or I'd hear some story of somebody, you know, falling asleep, nursing their child, and falling in some blankets and suffocating, and I always was always terrified. You know, God help us not to ruin our kids when they're little because we, we get tired or something. It's a terrible story. This woman apparently suffocates her baby in the middle of the night while sleeping. How horrible. Then the lady who's telling the story says, but then she got up in the night and took my son from beside me while I was asleep, and she laid her dead child in my arms and took mine to sleep beside her. What? Yep. It says, and in the morning when I tried to nurse my son, he was dead. But when I looked more closely in the morning, I saw that it was not my son at all. Who would do such a thing? Like you lost your son and you would switch him with somebody else? How does that fix your problem? You still lost your baby? You know, they just wrecked someone else's life also. Why would you do that? Was it because you're not wanting to look like a bad parent so you switched around so you look like you didn't do something accidentally terrible? Or is it because you're rivals? I mean, why would you do that? And Solomon, who's hearing the story, must have been tempted to say, that's terrible, give her her kid back. What's wrong with you? But then before he could speak, the other woman, then the other woman interrupted. And she says, no, it was certainly your son, the living one was mine. In other words, you tried to switch our children and it didn't work, so now you're telling a story to get my child from me because you couldn't take him from me. Well, why would you lie like that? Solomon could say, stop lying and live with your, you know, situation. But then the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead one is yours. 
they argued back and forth before the king. What do you do as the king? They both have a story. I'm sure they were both very convincing. Who wants to be the guy that says to the mother of the child, because you get it wrong, we're going to take your child from you and give it to somebody else to raise because I got it wrong. I mean, the, the stakes are so high in these people's lives. Unless the king just doesn't care and says, whatever, just get out, flip a coin. What, is, what, what do you do to not get this wrong? I mean, someone's going to be devastated if you get this wrong. And they're both convincing. They both are pitching their story pretty well. I don't know who to believe. Then the king said, let's get the facts straight. Both of you claim the living child is yours, and each says the dead one belongs to the other. They're like, yep, that's what we said. All right, he said, bring me a sword. What? Yeah, bring me a sword. So the sword was brought to the king. Then he said, cut the living child in two and give half to one woman and half to the other. Like your parents would say with your kids, you're fighting over a toy, we'll just split it in half and give each of you half the toy. You know, but as a kid, just I, mean, you, you know, I can't tell the difference. You can each take half. Are you happy? What a sick thing to say. What's Solomon's problem? He should have prayed a little harder for some wisdom there. It says, then the mother, then the woman who was the real mother of the living child and who loved him very much, she cried out, oh no, my Lord, give her the child, please do not kill him. In other words, she's saying, look, as terrible as it would be to have my child ripped from my life and raised by somebody else, especially someone who's as terrible as what this person's doing, as terrible, as horrible as it would be for my heart to have my child taken from me and raised by somebody else, it's better than seeing him die. Please just take it from me and, and, and devastate me, but spare his life. I can't bear to see him die. But the other woman said, all right, he'll neither be yours nor mine. Allow, divide him between us. I mean, that's what you wanted, right, huh? Then the king said, do not kill the child, but give him to the woman who wants him to live, for she is his mother. Now, I want to just acknowledge, that seems like a pretty intuitive story to read now. You're like, well, duh. That was, well, that was an easy one. Although the idea to ask the question was pretty clever. But I wonder if it's deeper than that. I wonder if this is a simplified version. I wonder if this was just written down, easy to read version. I wonder if it's just a picture of, of a conversation where the king had to, had to sort out two women claiming to have the same child as theirs and not the other one. How do I know? And so he begins to probe and say things that show which one has a mother's heart and which one is just trying to win. And eventually he figures out that's the mother's heart and that's the one just trying to win. And then he knows. And he says, give him to the mother. And it says, when all Israel heard the king's decision, the people were in awe of the king, for they saw the wisdom God had given him for rendering justice. And now Solomon is going to be known, world famous for his wisdom. Moving along quickly here. From there, they finally finished building the temple. They finally finished the temple, and it's time for a grand opening ceremony. They spend the word to the whole nation of Israel. People come from far and wide. There's a ribbon-cutting ceremony. It's a whole deal. And Solomon is praying to God in front of the crowd of people that is gathered, as well as praying privately in two different spots. And as Solomon prays, he acknowledges that it's about God, that what they're doing that day at the temple is about God and not about a building. I want you to see that in his prayer as they gather for the grand opening. Solomon says in 1 Kings 8.27, he says, But will God really live on earth 
why even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. In other words, he says, God, I'm not so silly as to think that we're putting you in a little temple building, like a little box, like a genie bottle. That we're saying, if you want to find God, find him in our temple, because that's where he abides. He's like, I realize that the whole world can't contain you, God. You made everything. Everything consists of you and by you. I understand that. It's not about this building. You're everywhere. Nevertheless, he says, listen to my prayer and my plea, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is making to you today. And Solomon proceeds to say, God, though you are bigger than this place, please bless this place. Though you're vast, more vast than what we're building here today, let this be one place with your special blessing so that the people who come here, who can pray to you no matter where they are, and can talk to you no matter where they are, when they come here, can find a special sense of your presence here, a special part of their spiritual journey as they seek to know you better. Let it be special. We won't make more of it than it is, but we want to make it what it is, a place to come and draw closer to God. And it says that in the end, in fact, it says it two chapters earlier in 1 Kings 8, 6.38, that it took seven years to build the temple. Now, I don't know if that sounds like a long time to you or not, seven years. But this is not Solomon building a house in his backyard on his 30 acres. This is Solomon with the wealth of the empire. All the, the preparation his dad had laid aside ahead of time, blueprints and money, all the taxation. We're going to see it at a later week. The kings of those days would tax the people for, and Solomon taxed them for the temple. They had all the money they wanted for, for supplies, for hired skilled labor. And he had a draft going on where they could draft people from the nation to come work on the project. So Solomon had no shortage of money, no shortage of skill, and no shortage of general labor. And it still took seven years to build the temple. It was opulent, gold and silver and precious stones and colorful fabrics. It was a beautiful place that stood out. In fact, what happens next is a lot of exploits that take place. Uh, Solomon's reign is majestic. He, his temple is one of the wonders of the world at that time. People came from far and wide to see the temple or to hear Solomon's wisdom. One famous story is the Queen of Sheba, who heard the reputation of Solomon's wisdom and his temple and his happy courtyards. And she wanted to see it for herself because she was cynical. Because if you've ever been to some place where maybe you watched a movie that you, everyone hyped it up real big, but by the time you saw it, you're like, wow, that was really overhyped. It wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. Expectations, you know. So she shows up to see if it's really all that in a bag of chips. And she gets to Jerusalem and she's like, she says, wow, I'm overwhelmed. It's better than I heard. It's, it's more beautiful than I've seen. Your wisdom is greater than I knew. And she left home impressed, as did everybody. And we can go on and on, but I'm just skipping through Solomon's story quickly today because we have a lot of ground to cover this year. Here's the important lesson. As a young king, Solomon prioritized the right pursuit. He did not pursue the death of his enemies or great riches or wealth or long life or fame when God offered him what he wanted. He said, I want wisdom. I want an understanding heart. Solomon, as a young king, prioritized the right pursuit. Now, for you and me today, I realize that none of us are kings today. And maybe we're not all that young either. But no matter how old or young you are, no matter what your race is, your age is, your gender is, or anything else, all put all of that aside here, we can ask for the same thing. We can also prioritize the right 
pursuit with our life? What do we live for? What do we ask for? What do we daydream about? What do we chase after? We could do the same thing that Solomon has done. So I'll use one more verse of Scripture before we close here. About 900 years after Solomon, roughly, less than 1,000 years after Solomon, Jesus Christ walked the earth. And as he went where he went, he taught people so many things over and over again, no doubt. And everywhere he went, he taught the same truths here and there. And one of the things that Jesus often said was, hey, don't worry about tomorrow what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. He says the whole world obsesses over that stuff. But your heavenly Father is going to take care of you. Okay, that's the side stuff. God's going to take care of that stuff. So don't obsess about the things of this life that come and go anyhow. God will take care of you. But instead, Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And what, what, what Jesus was saying is, while well, you can focus on the other stuff that your father will provide, I encourage you to seek him. Seek him and seek him first. His kingdom, because we tend to go to God and say, God, build my kingdom, do what I want for my kingdom and my world to go the way I want it to go, but instead say, God, how about your kingdom? What do you want to accomplish? What are you all about? Hey, God, fill, fulfill my will. No, 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 God, what's your will? Hey, God, what's best for me? No, 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 what's best for me? What's best for people? What's best in your eyes? What's righteous before you? And when we seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness, first, Jesus says, listen, all the other stuff that you could focus your life to be about, the things that you could chase with all of your energy, those things, those are the side benefits. I'll take care of that stuff, man. That can't fulfill you anyhow, but I'll provide. You put your priorities right and trust me with the rest. Let me just wrap up by saying this today. So many of our prayers, so many of our prayers are asking God to make our life better, right? God, if you'll just make my spouse treat me better, if you'll help my kids behave, if you'll help my parents stop being frustrating, if you'll help my boss or my employees or my neighbors or the person who gave me trouble, God, if you'll give me that relationship I really, really want, if you'll give me some more money or a pay raise, if you'll give me better uh, quality of life, health, if you'll give me um, some fame and some influence, we, we, we want, make, make me better, make my life better, make my life better. So many prayers we pray, if we boil them down to the core, they are prayers asking God to make our life better. But how about this instead? I want to give you, as you enter this new year, a different prayer to pray. I'm going to put it on the screen in just a moment here. Write it down, take a picture of it, whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. But how about maybe in this year, we change that prayer. As we enter 2024, we pray a better prayer. Perhaps something like this. God, if I know you better, that will make me better. And that will make my life better. I don't need you to, to pray for you to make my life better. I need you to make me better. Because if you make me better, that will make my life better. And so God, if I know you better, if I seek you first, if I understand your kingdom, your will, your righteousness, if, if I seek after you and I understand your ways, I have an understanding heart of who you are, what you're about, what you came into this world to do, what's, what matters to you, if I have an understanding heart, if I have that wisdom, if I know you, God, I'll be better. 
That will make me better. And if I am better, that will make my life better. So God, my requests are gonna be a little less about, Lord, make my life better. My requests are, God, make me better. My requests are, God, help me know you better. Because the trickle down will take care of the rest. I'm not preaching prosperity. Gospel here is saying that, you know, you do this and everything, you're rich and healthy, wealthy and wise. Or your life and, your, and God's will for you and, you know, the, the lot you have is, is, is what it is in many ways. But no matter what you're called to face or walk through, you will be better at it and it will be better if you're better. And you'll be better if you know him better, if you seek him first. His kingdom, his righteousness. So I wonder today if, if I can challenge some of us to change our prayers entering 2024 and say, God, a little less about these things that will make me, my life better. And God, a little bit more prayer of this. God, I just want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know your heart. I want to understand your heart. I want to have the wisdom to see what matters most. I want to see the world through your eyes. I want to see you, how you see me and how you see others. I want to know you, God. If I know you, it'll make me better. And God, if, if I'm better, that will make my life better. Let's change the priority. Let's change the prayer. And maybe, just maybe, we'll find out that God can take care of all the other stuff better than you and I ever could in the first place. We'll continue our journey through the story next week. For today, let's pray.